Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Happy Friday, Andy Constant, Damp Spring. Welcome back to Resolve Riffs. How you doing? Thanks, Adam. I appreciate it. That's great to have you here. Too bad there's not much going on in the markets for us to talk about. That's <laughs> yeah, been interesting. Um, I guess before we get started, we should remind everybody that this is not investment advice. This is for educational, informational, and potentially entertainment purposes only. If you uh, find anything we say today to be instructive, please run it by your own investment advisor. Make sure it's perfectly suitable for your own situation. With that said, uh, Andy, for those who've been hiding under a rock for the last year or so, maybe a super brief introduction so that people understand that um, you've got lots of credentials and there's a lot of knowledge and, and expertise behind the things you're going to talk about today. Sure. Started my career at Solomon Brothers, spent 18 years there in the equity department doing convertible bonds and uh, equity derivatives, as well as uh, managing the global equity derivatives business. There, I started my own relative value hedge fund, which I did for uh, with a few partners from Solomon, which I did for about five years. And then after the financial crisis, I saw the um, writing on the wall that I needed to understand macro well and was um, fortunate enough to join Bridgewater Associates as a senior idea generator, um, where I learned macro from, I think, the smartest minds in the world in macro. Um, 
after three, three and a half years, I sort of was burnt out and um, decided to leave and um, moved on eventually to Brevin Howard. And at Brevin Howard, I also saw a completely different way of doing macro, uh, both excellent, just completely different. And uh, at the end of my time there, Alan asked me to open up Damp Spring to service him as a client, but also to offer my services to a wider range of clients. And um, that's what birthed Damp Spring. Short journey there, I started tweeting about a little over two years ago and um, had, you know, 100 friends and family who sort of tweeted, you know, were on my following. And somehow my... um, my my um, style, words, method, message um, resonated, and um, it's grown to a seventy five thousand person following list with um, just the greatest opportunity to t- meet people like you, and also to interact with them and others to figure out what's going on in the world. Yeah, what a remarkable journey, Andy. Um, we're lucky to have you on here to share your views. Um, so. I'd love that. I think it'd be great to sort of set the stage with with how you navigated 2022, because obviously this was a very challenging year for many. And um, you were very active and public in how you were navigating it, your thinking, your framework on Twitter. Um, and obviously, you know, dealt with all of the trolls and, and <laughs> nonsense and what have you that that accompanies putting yourself out there <laughs> in uh, in that kind of way. But yeah, uh, how did 2022 go for you? What were you watching? How did you, you know, adapt your framework? How did your framework work? What did you learn? I think that's a really good way to kind of set up how you, how you think and adapt. Yeah. And I think that, that just, you roll it back to the big things that are happening in markets that started in uh, March of 2020 with, um, um, six tr- in what turned out to be six trillion dollars of quantitative easing and six trillion dollars of fiscal stimulus, and you know from then on I was essentially bullish assets all the way from twenty you know, the the you know near the lows of twenty twenty all the way to December of twenty twenty two and uh, sorry twenty twenty one and when I um, was listening to Chairman Powell talk um, at the press conference after the December Fed meeting, he mentioned that they were looking at the balance sheet. And that's all he said. He didn't say anything else than that. And what I heard there was QT is on its way. They were still doing QE. They were still, they hadn't started, they hadn't even started thinking about thinking about um, um, raising interest rates. Um, And he mentioned the balance sheet. And I sent out a tweet that moment saying, this is a game changer. The world has changed assets. It's, it's kryptonite for assets. Um, wrote a damp spring report, which is my flagship product for my hedge fund clients, um, and uh, called the drum beats of QT and suggested that the highs in um, um, the high for the S&P would be in, uh, in January and bonds and stocks would both sell off together aggressively. Um, And that was in December 29th. As we know, the world sort of became aware of that quantitative tightening idea um, uh, in the minutes on January 3rd. And from then on, it was down. And so I fought it, actually. (laughs) Um, After a big sell-off, I was thinking that this quantitative tightening front-running had gone too far. 
And so I bought assets. I, I always I bought equities, and pretty much Twitter only cares about equities. Um, and so you know that was a, a public buy, and uh, uh, it didn't work out at all. Um, and thankfully, I was short bonds and trade currencies and gold and other things. And so this kryptonite was really the whole theme of three quarters of 2022. Um, mm -hmm. But for a variety of reasons, you know, we had some fair amount of opportunity. Um, market aggressively rallied in March, um, once again, made substantial lows in in June only to rally very hard for the entire month of July and August um, and uh, then get hammered by um, Jay Powell at Jackson Hole again a massive dip into September and then a rally to December and then since then it's been mostly sideways and the way I navigate that is by tracking those flows um, normally uh, the Fed um, changing interest rates, the Treasury issuing bonds, spending its money, uh, running a deficit or of matter to markets. But what really typically matters is growth and inflation. And, um, and so that's sort of table stakes in the old days to understanding how market works. But when these flows that I'm describing of of fiscal and monetary um, stimulus and withdrawal of stimulus um, are the are so large. Uh, that's pretty much all there is, and if to understanding those things is key. Um, and so I was able to navigate fairly well, um, calling the bottom in June, and for my clients and telling them to sell literally the day of the Jackson Hole conference. Um, and then subsequently had a ve very good luck by um, calling the bottom on September 30th, which was also due to some very large equity derivatives transaction that was driving markets through that point. Lately, uh, uh, haven't been that great. Um, sold all assets on December 1st. And assets really sold off all of December. Uh, and now they're all the way back. So I'm break even on that trade, um, but I'm still short all assets. And so that's where we start January. I want to talk about flows because um, you put out a really interesting chart maybe last week. I, I forget exactly what it is. I see so many charts flow by, but um, you put out a great chart that showed that because um, a lot of people have been focusing on sort of defining liquidity as Fed balance sheet minus Treasury general account minus uh, reverse repo. It, there's like a general kind of yeah. framework for how to, or equation for how to define that. And you made a point of illustrating that, you know, for most of history, the um, flows as measured by, by changes in liquidity conditions actually didn't give you much in the way of information to allow you to forecast equity prices, especially um, out for weeks, months, quarters, whatever, right? It just wasn't very useful, right? So I think what I'm hearing you say is that the environment right now is that's the only thing that matters because the, the, the magnitude of those flows is so large relative to what they had been historically. Is that so a fair I characterization? I think that's very, very much right. I would say, I would say that that formula um, is important to understand because it has three important moving parts, which is the size of the Fed balance sheet, 
um, the amount of money um, in a reverse repo, um, the amount of money that the government, the Treasury Department has to spend. Um, and those are important and necessary um, um, items, each as their own. And as a group, it's an interesting formula. I don't have any, I think the formula is um, good and incomplete. And so, and the, and the way I look at it is a, a much more complete idea of each of those things, as well as other things that matter about liquidity. For one, you can have liquidity without the Fed balance sheet, treasury, or the RRP moving at all. You can have changes in liquidity simply because um, if you go to the bank and say, I want to buy a regular old commercial bank and say, I want to buy treasuries, they can um, say, sure, here's the money um, out of thin air. Go buy your treasuries and pledge them to us as collateral. And all of a sudden, a new buyer of duration happens. And the same thing can apply to the S&P 500 or any asset whatsoever. Um, commercial banks can create money out of thin air. And so in normal times, when there isn't these governmental flows, that's actually the most important thing. Um, but they're small now. So anyway, I'm, all I'm saying is it's an incomplete thing, and it's very focused on uh, what I call cash substitutes. RRP is a money market fund vehicle for them to invest. Uh, the Treasury General account gets placed in people's accounts as deposits. When it gets spent down, it doesn't get placed in the S&P 500. Um, and the Fed balance sheet, all they get when it goes down is they get paid their maturity. So they're not doing anything in duration. But what matters to financial assets is the duration that's being bought and sold because that's risk. Okay, I want to I want to dig really deeply into that because I think that's so key, and I think you're one of the few people that I've seen focused on that sort of the constitution of where the treasury is issuing and where the Fed is is allowing things to roll off matters a lot. But before we go there, you mentioned that for you know in normal times, um, monetary creation or liquidity that's created from commercial banks dominates the liquidity, the changes in the liquidity environment. I'm just wondering, what are some direct ways to measure the changes in liquidity from that channel? Well, so I like to think of willing and able. Um, willing is sort of a combination of rates and animal spirits for the banks, um, which, you know, my old boss, Chuck Prince at Solomon, was famous for saying, you know, we're going to continue to make loans uh, because everybody's on the dance floor and we need to da keep dancing. And so that was a good measure of willingness. And you can also see that in loan growth. So like loan officer survey type um, readings Lots as well. Lots of ways to measure it. That's a reasonable way. There's sentiment and there's data and, you know, the actual growth of loans, where those loans are going to whom and what they're using them for. Um, there's also demand pull, which is people who want to versus um, banks. Banks are sort of neutral, but there's a strong demand from customers, and that can be measured. Um, late uh, until recently, there was um, the reason why interest rates were very, very low is no one wanted to borrow. So right. um, when no one wants to borrow, interest rates fall to zero, regardless of what the Fed's doing. 
And that's because animal spirits were so negative. Um, and um, so anyway, that's some of the ways to measure it. And then there's, um, then, then there's ability, which is a measure of bank health. And so the reason why 2007 and 2008 were so devastating is because no matter, because if you had animal spirits to buy assets during 2007 or 2008, the banks were unwilling, unable to lever you because right. they were delevering themselves. And so they couldn't lend to you. Um, and so, so it's a combination of ability and willingness and then measuring that to see how, um, um, elastic it is, meaning how, um, uh, how much price will be impacted impacted based on the willingness and ability. Um, for instance, it was, there was just no, no supply at all um, in 2007 and 2008. So, um, you know, it was high inelasticity, um, which is when markets move. You're looking for certain situations. Violent market moves occur when there's inelastic flows one way or the other. Right. And that typically shows up in the short-term lending markets or at the Fed window, or there's a variety of different ways that that pressure can be relieved, I guess. Right. Right. Sure. And we saw that, um, what was it, uh, 2018 in the repo crisis? We saw, you know, the Fed had to act to calm the repo market um, that, that fall. Um, now, this ironically, that can't possibly happen th this time, given there's $2 trillion looking to do repo. At the time, no one was willing to do repo. Um, and so that had a big impact on the ability to finance long positions or short positions in various markets. Yeah, um, very so interesting. Richard, I, I like that some of the work of Richard Werner um, on, the, on, on the banking side. And um, I'm reminded that really banks can lend for three reasons. You can, you can lend for that um, asset-based lending, you can lend for, lend for consumption, um, or you can lend for business expansion, right? Um, mm -hmm. Entrepreneurship. Um, to what extent does the, the composition of the changes in bank lending books in each of those different categories matter to asset markets? So, you know, my overall framework is not, is um, higher at, at, the overall impact than it is at the um, different sectors. Um, easy um, easy uh, lending conditions in one asset tends to versus another tends to result in asset asset shifts. And so we're talking about credit versus um, equity finance versus building and build uh, you know um, plant and material finance, consumption, credit card. As long as conditions are generally easy, that tends to flow across the board. And um, but you're right. If you and I don't do this, but if you were to look more um, directly at um, what form of lending is, is occurring, um, that can help you trade sectors. Right, that makes sense. But it's the same process. Right. Okay. Duration. So. I would I really want you to take your time, if you don't mind, and go into how you think about the um, the decisions that the that the Fed are making as they're facing the Treasury and vice versa, and in terms of the composition of the duration that's either being issued or um, or maturing, and 
how that impacts different um, parts of the asset markets. Right. So I think the best way to look at that is, I think it's the most intuitive way is to start with how QE works, which is um, when the Fed buys bonds in the marketplace. And when the Fed buys bonds in the marketplace, that means um, um, somebody in the marketplace had to sell them. Um, and now they have cash and they don't want cash. The only reason why they sold the bonds to the government is because the government Fed was paying what they perceived to be a rich price, so they sold. But now they have cash and they, their investors um, don't want them in cash. They want them invested. So those investors are forced to typically, it's not always the case, but typically buy a slightly more risky asset. So for instance, they sell, they sell a 10-year to the government, to the Fed, and then buy a 10-year corporate. Now, of course, the seller of the 10-year corporate now has cash. And so what do they do with that cash? And um, what they do, particularly if they're a corporation, uh, they use that, that cash to fund a share repurchase. And so now shares are being bought by the corporation, and the seller has cash, and they want more risk. So maybe they buy a meme stock. But the meme stock seller now has cash. And so maybe they buy a, a random, um, I'm not going to use the term, random crypto coin. Um, <laughs> you can see shit coin on this show. <laughs> they buy a shit coin. The seller now has cash. What do they do? I've heard they buy Lambos. That's my old statement. And then Lambos stimulate real consumption. And so when the Fed buys bonds, they eliminate an asset from the market that the market wants and the markets chase assets because every buy is somebody else's sell until it ultimately, through the wealth effect, somebody finally says, gosh, I'm wealthy, I'm going to buy a Lambo. And that's how it stimulates both inflation very weakly through this wealth effect idea, um, but it does bid up not just the tenure that the government, that the Fed bought, but every asset gets a little bit bid up. And when you do it in the size that the Fed did, you get asset inflation. And so quantitative tightening is just the opposite. Okay, can I pause for a second? Because I think I, I just want to distinguish because my sense is that if the Fed had said, we're going to buy up all the T-bills, that is a very different effect on markets than if they say they're going to buy up all the all the all the T bonds. Absolutely, and that's where duration comes in. And um, Japan is the inventor of quantitative uh, easing. Um, until we started doing it in the U.S., Japan focused on the short end. And they didn't get any of the effect they wanted. They didn't get any inflationary effect. They didn't get any stimulative effect because there's constantly almost an infinite supply of people who are willing to borrow and lend overnight. And so it just doesn't finance stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't push the money to risky assets. And so if the Fed were to buy T-bills, um, they would have printed money and that might have resulted in some currency weakness, but it's unlikely it would have driven asset prices. And the reason is long-term assets like 10-year notes or 30-year bonds or equities or meme stocks or crypto all have what's called a risk premium. And that's what the Fed is targeting. 
They're trying not to take 10-year bonds out of the market because they want to set the interest rate. They're trying to take assets out of the market to reduce the return one gets from holding risky assets so that people will consume. And T-bills, because they don't change in price very much, depending on the maturity, the tiny, tiny amount, just don't have a lot of exposure to risk premium. And so they don't generate running out the, of, on, into the risk curve. Right. right. So, so that, they're just real. swapping. Sorry, Adam. They're just swapping yeah. a risk-free rate for another semi-risk-free rate. Right? The money market funds are, are looking at those banks that can create infinite amount of money at a reasonable rate. That audience isn't looking to go up the risk curve. Or if they are, it's a, it's a very small amount because it's... Um, right. You, you have know, to take away... I guess the point is you have to take away somebody's risk to make them want more. And if you buy a T-bill, you're just not taking anybody's risk away because they didn't have any to begin with. Mm-hmm. Whereas T-bonds so, have volatility, have a risk premium, so they need to find more of that. Got it. Yep. Okay. So I, I wanted to zero in on one thing you said there because I think you said um, the idea is the Fed wants to compress risk premium because at some point the risk premium will become so low that it will no longer make sense to to invest in risk, but so you'll instead take that money and use it for consumption. Right. I do. We all agree that that effectively had almost no impact. That that hard. That, to, that was so the, most the least efficient channel. <laughs> so most people would agree with you. I am um, at the high level um, agree, but I want to just say one thing. We don't know because we don't have a um, counterfactual. The mechanism of handing, of bidding up each little bit of assets till you finally get that last guy who wants to consume is just weak. And so I think it was um, goods and it, one thing for sure, it was asset inflationary because it was designed Mm -hmm. to be. Yes. Including real estate. Right. I think we kind of go into, anything, into real estate, remodeling to sell your real estate, flip it. The, anything, the Lambo is kind of the last thing. Right. Anything in which you're trans, when you sell an asset, you decide to buy another risky asset, bids that asset up. Yeah. Um, and transfers the risk premium purchased by the Fed to um, some other asset. Um, the consumption is just very weak. And so, I think it's true that, and the, the higher level thing is, I think the Fed knows it's true. They didn't do QE because they think it's a great thing to do. They did QE because they didn't have anything else to do. Interest rates yeah. were zero. Right, right. You have an option. You try what you have. And their options are interest rate and or liquidity. Well, I mean, I not, think they don't have they didn't have fiscal. Uh, so they don't control the fiscal. If yeah. you remember, so I wrote, I watch all these Fed um, chairmen go up in front of um, Congress every time, and for from two thousand and nine to two thousand, I don't know, call it nineteen. Every time they went to the Hill, they said, "We're doing our part. Fiscal needs to do theirs." Mm-hmm. Fiscal, fiscal didn't do much in terms of certainly didn't do what they did in the in the last time up at the hill 
In that case, you had MMT, massive fiscal, massive um, monetization, um, and we're we're experiencing the result of that in um, this the post um, opening up environment. Um, but you didn't have that in during the time when Adam correctly says didn't do much. It did something, just didn't do much. Yeah, but I I think that it did a lot on assets. It did a tremendous amount on assets, which I think we can all agree probably did a lot of damage too in many in many respects. But um, I think one of the major flaws in that mechanism is that it works in it works in in uh, fixed income. It certainly works in in rates. It probably works in in credit because people that that operate in credit and rates have a very strict definition of risk premium, and there's a lot of regulatory apparatus too that limits you know, the kind of credits you can invest in, et cetera. The problem is risk eventually is pushed into risky assets, right? It's pushed into equities. And the equity owner reaction function is flipped on its head, right? It's literally stocks go up. The anticipation is the stocks are going to go up even more, right? The, the equity owner buys equities because the prices have risen, because the, the risk premium is lower, right? And so you've got this flipped, it, it just... It well, there's a belief that Adam, there's. Adam, we're going to disagree on that. Well, there's a belief that there's think, future cash flows. I think, right. I think momentum is momentum, and every market, currencies, gold, fixed income operates the same way as equities, which is momentum is a thing, and people, you know, who get in early and sell to the last person in in every market benefit from the momentum of animal spirits. Um, and I think equity people do the same thing. I, I Listen, I come from equities, but I spent my time at Solomon Brothers, which is very well known as a fixed income firm. Uh, I've seen it both and I've seen the macro. And more importantly, I've looked at the assets and how their returns are. And momentum is just a, as powerful a force in non-equities as it is in What's, equities. Yeah, well, look, look, we, at, look we at the- cross-asset momentum. That's one no, of our no, no. primary things. <laughs> but, but, but from the perspective, I think what you said, Adam, is that it's very clear you get a risk premium. It's the yield that you get on the bond. But then you see German bonds have momentum to a negative 75% print. That's, that's got nothing to do with risk premium, right? That's negative risk premium in your face and just, it's just people bidding up that bond, right? So- I'm not going to go yeah, down. How do you explain that? Hole. It doesn't seem to matter. What the, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of uh, Germany, but I would say that the negative rates indicated that there was still extremely tight money in Germany, and that the rates actually needed to be a lot more negative to be stimulative, which is counterintuitive. Just at the high level, a two percent rate can be extremely tight or extremely easy, and a 10% rate can be extremely tight or extremely easy. It's just whether borrowing is a good thing or a bad thing relative to what you use the money for. Yeah, and then you've got this reflexivity of the signaling mechanism, like if rates are so negative, what does that imply about growth? And then should I be make, making yeah. these investments? Right. What's the projects? real rate, maybe, right? Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but as it relates to risk premium, I think the best thing to do when you think about risk premium is I think equity people, people pay in front, um, understand PE. And PE is really the inverse of risk premium. 
um, in that PEs expand when risk premiums contract. And so the effect of quantitative easing on equities, risk premium expansion. Uh, yeah, sorry, right. multiple expansion. Multiple expansion. Multiple yeah. expansion. I mean, financial yeah, assets. We also had this explosion of SPACs and, and meme stocks. And I mean, eventually we had re- release valves everywhere for right. speculation. But, but okay, so, so let's put that aside. So, so let's go back to duration and why, why duration matters. Yeah. Right. So now let's talk about QT. And I, it's not as easy um, to, to conceptualize it versus the Lambo thing. But now, um, what I think is people misunderstand the mechanism. And thank, thankfully to the UK, who can make it simple. They sell their bonds to the marketplace in an auction. And it's very clear what that the BOE is doing. They're selling 10-year notes. And so the same exact thing happens where now somebody who had enough 10-year notes, the private sector in total, had enough 10-year notes, needs to take on the 10-year notes that the BOE is selling. And so that requires them to um, get paid for that. And they get paid for that by a concession or an increased risk premium. Now, that increased risk premium, they had to raise the cash somehow to get that 10-year note. They couldn't just maybe... We'll get to whether banks can create it. But if they did, um, to, to assume that extra duration risk that they didn't want, they may say their portfolio is too risky and sell equities, their multi-asset portfolio. Now, an equity guy is like, I see equities for sale. I'm going to bid down for that. But they don't have any money either. So they have to sell something else, maybe a meme stock. And the meme guy says, gosh, I don't have money to buy this meme stock. I'm going to have to delay my purchase of a Lambo. And so that's how quantitative tightening works in the, the, um, in England, where they're actually making at the market sales of their um, SOMA portfolio. That's not what's happening in the United States. In the United States, the Fed... Um, is doing runoff. And what runoff means is when a bond matures, they don't reinvest the proceeds. And so their balance sheet shrinks over time. Um, But, and this is the subtle thing and why, you know, it's very confusing, but it really matters. Um, Somebody has to come up with the money to pay the Fed. And that somebody is the U.S. Treasury. And the way the U.S. Treasury gets money, assuming they aren't, you know, raising taxes or cutting spending or spending money they've already um, borrowed, which is what the TGA is, they go out and sell a bond. Now just, so now let's pair that together and just say the Fed and the Treasury are the BOE. Now that entity sells a bond to the market and QT works the exact same way as um as it does in, 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 in England. Okay, hold um, on, because I just want to clarify something, because I think some people may not quite put all those pieces together. I think the missing piece is the Fed owns a bond. The Fed either needs to get paid back par on that bond when it matures, right? Or if the Treasury doesn't pay the Fed back, then the Fed has just printed that money, right? So... In order, the treasury needs to needs to neutralize that asset by 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 paying the Fed back, 
And and now we can move into what you've been saying, right? The Fed, sure. the Treasury yeah. then needs there to issue more debt to pay them back. There is right. an alternative to the Fed to say, yeah, forget it. Right. Now, that's called debt monetization and right. is um, not something the Fed has thought much about. There right. is some discussion about whether um, the Bank of Japan will one day monetize the debt and just forgive it, essentially. Um, but that has major implications, which is yes. not what's happening. So, okay. get, so can I, can I, sorry, I, I just want to make sure I understand what both of you just said. We're talking about runoff. The yep. Fed owns a treasury decides to run it off, meaning it's not going to not buy a new one from or just roll it back into their their sheet. So they need to get paid for that. And the treasury needs to pay them back somehow. Right. Yep. And this is where I'm I don't know what's happening right now. Is the treasury then paying them and they can have cash when you said when you said, oh, it doesn't matter. You can keep it. Isn't that the same thing as debt monetization? Like, well, how what am I missing here? Right. So when the Fed gets paid back. So the Fed uh, does get paid back by Treasury. By Treasury, meaning yeah. Treasury just says, here's a check here's from a check. my checking account to cover the maturity. The Fed, which is independent of that, gets paid. Just like, by the way, every the bonds that the Treasury that mature at the Fed, other people own those bonds too. The Fed, the Treasury doesn't discriminate. They send the check to the holders, the Fed just happens to be one of them. And, and what that the check Fed comes does, from the TGA. Yes, that's their checking account, essentially, okay. conceptually. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's probably not done with a paper check, though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now the Fed balance sheet is shrinking. Right. So the TGA is shrinking. Well, let's just let's just play that last bit. We wanted to talk about duration, so let me just close that thought, and then we'll get into the plumbing a little bit, if you'd like. Yes. Um, the Bank of England sells what they want to sell because they want to have a, an impact on the um, markets in a particular way. They want to expand risk premiums and take add risk to the market. The Fed has completely ceded the control of where the money is raised to the Treasury Department. And so the Treasury Department can choose what duration they want to sell. And so let's say they owe the Fed $60 billion this month, which is what is the runoff. So that's what they owe every month that they need to fund. Remember, we were talking about how little impact on financial assets um, bills buying and selling has. If the Treasury decided to issue bills to fund the government paying it back, it's not going to have any impact on the, um, on the, on the, on anything on, on asset markets, really on the economy. It'll just get absorbed by the almost infinite liquidity in people who want to borrow and lend short term. But if, what if they sold only 30 year bonds, which are the most risky bonds they could possibly sell? Well, damn, that would have a major impact on the risk that the private sector needed to own, and that would have a significant negative impact on asset prices. So now Janet has the lever. The BOE has the lever. Nobody gave the lever to, away at the BOE. 
the Fed decided to give the way, away the lever. And now Janet can actually determine the impact of QT. Totally her, her call. Got it. So the Treasury pays back. The Fed's allowing a 10-year bond to run off. The Treasury pays that back along with all the other holders of that bond. And in order to pay that back, now, it, might, it gets revenue from taxes, but notwithstanding that, in order to pay that back, it issues a, a, a security, right? Yep. Um, if it chooses to issue a T-bill security, has no impact on asset markets. If it chooses to issue a T-bond, could have quite a negative impact on, on asset markets, right? So in, in effect, Janet Yellen has you know, control of the, of the puppet strings on what happens to risk markets in the intermediate term. The impact of QT. She owns that. It's her ball. So the Fed, the Fed has a QT. They, they, they impact how much their balance sheet is, but ultimately it's Yellen who has the impact on financial markets. Yes. Okay, that's now they could choose to sell out the bonds they have. They haven't. In fact, they've repeatedly say they want to only own treasury bonds um, while they still own, I don't know, two, I, I don't remember, I didn't look recently, two and a half, three trillion dollars of mortgage bonds that are also running off at 35 billion. And by the way, those runoffs are not paid back by the treasury, they're paid back by the private sector. And that mm -hmm. already is tightening financial conditions, just that runoff. But they could sell mortgages outright and they just have, for whatever reason, they haven't decided to do anything that is uh, except seed control to the private sector for how the mortgages get repaid, financed and repaid, and the treasury for how the government bonds they own get repaid. Um, and it's just interesting. Now, what does that all mean? Um, it just means Janet has a lever and, um, it's interesting to me that she chose a year ago to issue a ton of money in Q1 of 2022, just a ton across bills, bonds, everything. The whole spectrum. Um, the whole spectrum. Okay. Even though it turns out that in Q2, we had massive tax revenues um, and um, because nominal growth was so high and wage, though, though lagging, were up, and that created a huge it, tax, um, not increase, but um, tax um, revenue, um, such that in Q2 and in Q3, she hard, hardly had to issue anything. Well, wait a second. Q1, QT was happening. Sorry, QE was happening. Bond, Fed was buying bonds. Right. Let's jam them while they're buying so we don't have to jam the public in Q1, Q2, and Q3 because we've already sold the bonds, we, we've already issued and saved the money. Um, and so I think part of the reason why we rallied so hard in July and August was the lack of treasury bond supply, even though QT had started, there were no bonds necessary to be sold. 
because the Fed had the TGA had already grown so large that they could have paid off the bonds in that cycle once the Fed demanded payment um, with the same money they actually raised selling to the Treasury to the Fed in the Q in Q1. And, and so, so that subtlety I, I'm trying to explain to get so, an understanding of the various levers. So it's an interesting subtlety because the question is, is the Treasury on the side of crushing inflation like the Fed? Did not, because it would seem counterproductive if they're all pulling in the same direction here, right? Clearly the Fed wants to crush inflation. That's not helping when you get animal spirits up thinking that it's it's over now and we can turn risk on again. Sure is. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a dilemma, isn't it? Um, it's a conundrum. Why is she doing that? What's the um, what's the incentive? So, Your political? Is it a, is it an election year type of thing? I, I, help right. me understand. So the big story is she hasn't done much to pull these levers, and yet um, we had uh, legislation that. Um, uh, funded $100 billion worth of spending on um, chip plants. And uh, gosh, I don't even know the number. Was it $400 billion of spending to reduce inflation? Right. The, the, what is it called? The Inflation Reduction, inflation Act. reduction Act. Act. <laughs> it's the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and so uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a political analyst. But I would say that their interests are not perfectly aligned. They're, okay. they're also, their their timing might be off, right? Maybe that's an inflation reduction of five years from now, whereas the Fed's trying to fight inflation today. Gosh, I hope inflation isn't reduced in five years because then it'll be, you know, minus 2%. I'm thinking more secular. Well, yeah, okay. I know, I, I know what you're thinking. I'm just <laughs> playing that. So through. again, the SPR. You know, Biden is going to go down and is better than, you know, I knew a great oil trader named Andy Hall at Solomon Brothers, Fibro, um, who was the best oil trader I've ever seen. But Biden's looking like he's crushing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's we'll a see. good point. But that was anti-inflationary, it appears. Yeah. The timing does appear interesting um, <laughs> given the given the midterms. But let's let's move on from that. I, what I wanted to um, ask, and actually someone in the chat has just posted, um, TGA in early May 2022 spiked to $945 billion, now down to $491 as of Jan 25th. Um, so how do you view the current state of the Treasury fiscal um, situation or, or the, the Treasury's balance sheet? Um, vis-a-vis some upcoming auctions and and they're they need to declare what their expected issuance is going to be sometime in the next couple of weeks if i remember yeah so i'm very focused on this um you know the fed's talking next week on the uh we'll have a press conference i think on the first um an announcement at two o'clock and a press and a press conference soon after and there's a lot of focus on that looks like 25 basis points that's seems in cement. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll look to Powell to see whether, you know, how long interest rates will be high. That's not something I care much about. Um, it's very followed. 
what isn't followed is um, a meeting that happens um, at the same time. And that is um, the um, meeting of the uh, treasury, um, treasury bond auction committee, TBAC it's called. Anyway, it's, I get the um, acronym wrong all the time. Um, that's a bunch of people from the sell side and the buy side who advise the treasury on what the demand for duration is in the context of what the government needs to issue to fund itself. And um, they announce their auction schedule um, at 8.30 before the um, Fed meeting. Uh, and that'll tell you what the uh, amount, whether they'll change the auction schedule um, for the rest of this quarter and what it means for um, the next quarter. Um, and so, as I said, what really matters is how much bills versus duration get sold. And so I'm going to pay attention to that, both in quantity and in composition. Uh, is there typically language around that that also might give you clues on, on motivations or you know, the general sort of shifts in direction of thinking? Um, there is. They have, a, they have minutes, actually. And if you recall uh, last summer, there was a lot of interest that lasted until the following November meeting um, that the um, TBAC was asked to determine whether um, – there should be um, treasury purchases done by the Department of the Treasury in the open market to assure liquidity in the treasury market. And people actually thought in November when this information came out, again, right around the Fed meeting, um, that the, um, the Department of the Treasury was going to actually go in there and buy duration and essentially do an operation twist, twist. which again would be exactly the opposite of what the Fed's trying to do. And so, of course, they didn't do that. But that, that minutes of the TBAC actually created a fair amount of speculation that something like that would happen. So there is information that comes from those minutes. And I, you know, I recommend reading some of the back history of them. It's interesting. I find it interesting. I'm a little bit of a nerd on that stuff. But um, this one is going to be all about um, the debt ceiling. Right. right. So before we get into the debt ceiling, can you guys hear me, by the way? Because someone took my microphone. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it was off and on. Um, before we get to the debt ceiling, if Janet again decides to sort of stay neutral, in other words, she's, she says that we need to raise this amount or this is our estimated amount for this upcoming quarter and we're going to do what we've been doing all along, which is kind of just issue along the curve in a relatively neutral way, what do you affect what, what do you expect that kind of impact to have on on markets if any yeah i mean i think that's what's um so let's step back for a second what have they been doing um over the last um as the needs of the um government to fund dropped throughout 2022 due to this big bolus of tax re receipts um they did two things. One, they um, went on a path of reducing coupon issuance, which means the, um, which is good for the markets. And part of the reason why I got bullish in markets in the summertime is they had undergone a strong path of reducing overall coupon issuance. Um, and they've stopped doing that. 
Wait, can I can I just I don't understand what that means. Sorry, coupon issuance is what do you mean by that? Do you just so mean anything that's that not a T bill? Yes, coupons okay. are not T bills. Coupon okay. T bills are issued at a discount, so they don't actually have coupons. Yeah. And coupons okay. are anything longer than a year. Just wanted to double check. That I understood that. Yep. Okay. Yep. Duration reduction has been there was the word for 2022. And again, it, you wonder why, because it does mute the impact of quantitative tightening, but I don't want to go back to that political discussion. Um, at the same time, the, they couldn't reduce coupons enough. So they actually had to um, significantly reduce T-bill issuance during that period of time. And so, in fact, in the in Q2 of 2022, uh, the total amount of T-bills outstanding went down by $66 billion because they just didn't need the money. Right. They were reducing coupons as fast as they could, and they didn't need any more money because every time they issue a bond, they get money. Um, and so coupon um, bills actually went negative. They paid off bills which of course resulted in a bills desert. What happens when there's a bills desert? People look to deposit money with their bank instead of being in bills. The banks, because of changes in the supplemental leverage ratio, um, couldn't take on deposits. And But there was the RRP. And so what happened? All the money flew into the RRP, which was a alternative to bills and still is um, so that's so the, so the the banks couldn't weren't just mechanically able to lever up enough to to get the demand and that's when it transfers over to the had, it was not an attractive place for the fed the banks to um lend um they wanted to the rate that they the rate was going to be low anyway but they just right. didn't have the um regulatory room to take on more deposits and so those People that were chasing bills and there weren't any more bills ended up going into the RRP. Which is why I guess the banks haven't, we haven't seen the banks raise deposit rates very much, right? They, they, they actually are not trying to attract more assets. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. They are not trying to attract deposits. To, right. um, and that's because, partly because deposits are low NIM. You can't really, a wholesale, like so checking accounts still pay zero. And that's criminal. Um, large brokerage firms pay 35 basis points on cash. That's criminal. Retail gets completely railroaded and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But real savers like corporations and wealthy individuals, they don't keep their money in checking accounts. They go to what are called wholesale deposits. And wholesale deposits pay very little NIM to the bank, net interest margin to the bank, um, and are um, because of this change, not not because of the uh, return to a regulatory regime where um, deposits are um, expensive to keep, um, banks have no interest. And so there's a possibility, and I'm going to be paying attention to that. Some reporter every quarter, every every meeting will ask something about the SLR and whether the Fed is going to um, make deposits. Um, more attractive to banks to hold. And then you'll see the RRP collapse when that happens. And so that's a way that the Fed can drain the RRP. And we'll see when that'll happen one day. It just hasn't. Interesting. 
Okay, so at $491 billion at, in January, how does that, is that low, high? Is that about average TGA? for this time of year? The TGA? Yeah. 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 So, um, so every day the TGA changes because of a variety of things. They send money to bondholders that are getting a maturity. That's an outflow. They send uh, money to the economy through fiscal spending. That's an outflow. They receive tax receipts and they receive issuance proceeds. And so that number is pretty volatile. Um, what's the big picture now? The big picture is that number is going to zero in the next six months. Um, because um, tax receipts and spending will be what they are. Let's step back and say, What's actually going on is we're running a trillion-dollar deficit this year, um, just a normal deficit, and we owe the Fed a trillion dollars. So that's two trillion dollars of money we are we need to fund. Um, and so, okay, how are we funding that? Uh, well, that's going to have to be net issuance. But wait a second, we're capped. Debt ceiling, right? And so. Um, that's the conundrum. And the first thing we do is we spend all the money we got. And so that's going from 490, it was 350 a, a few days ago before the auction settled, um, to zero. So they, they're not allowed to issue any more, um, any more bills or notes until after they get approval to issue? I thought that that Deadline was not until June, but it, but they're held hostage until that date is what you're saying. Right this very moment, the debt ceiling is um, in place and they cannot exceed that. Nothing's Understood. Got it. So the, re the reason the market's not currently panicking is because there's still a half a trillion dollars in the TGA to, to you know, and well, I guess the Fed could back off its QT for, for a few months if, to, to ease some of the pressure if they couldn't resolve it politically. Uh, sure, they could reinvest the pro. The problem is they need to reinvest proceeds. Where are they getting the proceeds from? Yeah, where are they getting the issuing? They could, pay, they could pay to the treasury, but then the treasury raises their indebtedness. Right. That said, net, you're right. That could happen because their indebtedness drops by the amount that the treasury, the Fed gets paid back. They issue zero debt change. That's not the big picture. The thing is that currently there, there are people out there in the market who I talk to all the time, professionals, name brand professionals at the big dealers, who actually think that um, this quarterly refunding next week is going to show that they're not going to issue, that they're going to spend down the TGA and they're not going to issue because they can't. And so that talks about what are called extraordinary measures. Um, and extraordinary measures is essentially, it's very nerdy, but one particular obligation that the government has, which is about $325 billion, they can cancel if they promise to repay it eventually. And that frees up $325 billion of issuance. So there's the 490. There's the current debt ceiling, which is, call it 50 away. I don't know if it's 100 or 50 right now. It's, by the way, it's on the Treasury site every single day. 
um, how close we are. If they use these, they've said they're going to use these extraordinary measures, that's going to give them $325 billion of issuance room. That plus $490 billion of TGA gets you to June because you've got a, what I say, a $2 trillion um, hole to fill. And you've got $800 billion of room. And so that's why June is where June is. Gotcha. Um, so do you have a view on how this is going to play out? Um, yeah, I, I, I think there's, uh, so we'll know. And so we'll, uh, what I'll do is just look at the data. Um, I think that the Treasury is in a position where it has to, um, um, it's going to issue. Um, it can always get below the debt ceiling um, by paying off some T-bills instead of rolling them, instead of reissuing. They can just let them run off. Um, and that'll get lower the debt temporarily. So I think there's going to be some movement with bills, how many bills are issued during this period of time, how many bills mature during this period of time, all in the context of making sure to maintain an orderly market in the duration market. Because the moving part, bills can move very easily. They can issue some today and let some redeem tomorrow. But coupons, the auction schedule is, um, you know, they want to make sure people show up to the auction. So they want that. And they're, they're literally one of their basic principles in the teaback is to maintain a understandable and consistent issuance pattern for risky coupons. And so to me, that lends, lends to probably more coupons than bills as we approach the debt ceiling. And so if you remember what that means in terms of duration. Right. That so has that's, an implication. that's why you're short all assets. That's one reason. That's okay. That's I, I expect further further tightening of conditions as as coupon issuance remains high even during a debt ceiling period. Okay, right. so that's one reason. What are your what are your other reasons? Yeah, so I, this is the question of where I'm at right now, and where I'm at right now is um, there are lots of outcomes, and no outcome is going to be exactly the same as it was. But just broadly, I'd like to characterize three outcomes that I think are pretty much what people think could be the case, subtleties around it. One is that the economy, that the Fed has done um, too much. Um, all of these negative inflation prints are, um, are just the harbinger of further weakness in prices. CPI is dead. And the economy is weakening strong quickly. You know, we had a 2.9 GDP print. Hard to believe, but okay. We're going into a recession imminently. Or we're in a recession or any of those combinations of things. But it's a recession. That's one possibility. Um, another possibility is um, a soft landing. In that case, the Fed is done, tuned with their creaky levers, some of which they've handed to the Treasury to actually manage, um, have just hit it. And here we are with a soft landing in which we see no job 
job um, declines, no recession, and inflation returning to target. Um, and that is a Goldilocks environment. Um, it's possible. It just is, is, is a potential outcome. And then I guess the last outcome is, gosh, the Fed really hasn't done enough. And this temporary drop in inflation um, um, with uh, easing of financial conditions, a rally in asset markets, um, um, the perception that the pause is permanent and we, we're about to end the hiking cycle for good. Lots of animal spirits, both in financial assets and the, then in Lambo buying. Um, is um, And then a much bigger point, everybody has a job. Everybody's wages are going up, even while CPI is going down. Wages have lagged. They were below, they didn't keep track of real, they, real wages were down. But now, Wages are up. Top line is flat because CPI is flat. And so th that dynamic of strong labor conditions, which is what the Fed is talking about, um, uh, is inflationary. Um, and I don't know, maybe it comes back. And so that's an outcome. And that requires further tightening of financial conditions by the Fed to um, – to offset this inflation and finally kill it dead, which sort of delays the landing. It could be soft. It could be soft after a tightening cycle, a new tightening cycle, or it could be a recession after a new tightening cycle, but new tightening cycle. Uh, there first, we have a new tightening cycle. And so those are the three outcomes and you can fool with them however way you want. And what, what it means for individual assets or individual sectors is very important. Um, yeah. But, Two out of the three, everything but the Goldilocks, financial conditions get tighter, which means that cash is when, what does it mean for financial conditions to get tighter? It means holding cash versus holding a portfolio of bonds and stocks and gold and commodities and whatever is more attractive. That's what it means, literally what it means. And so... The reason why that happens in a uh, recession is because people lose their jobs. They can't spend. That reduces incomes for others, which reduces the ability to pay back debts, which means people scramble for cash, which means financial conditions tighten. In higher for longer, which is the thing I call um, the inflationary case, the Fed engineers tighter financial conditions by creating another tight tightening cycle. Uh, both of them are bad for assets. Now, Higher for longer is good for equities and really bad for bonds. And a recession is really bad for equities and pretty good for bonds. Um, so I don't know which it's going to be. And so I'd rather be short assets expecting that we're not going to get a soft landing than have to choose between a recession or a, another tightening cycle. And this is a cheap way to do it. So walk me through the, the equity bull case for higher for longer. Sure. So there's two cases. So now that we're getting into the subtleties, the higher for longer. Um, so we've had a higher for longer. And what that has done is all of 2021, 2022, um, CPI was high, which is revenue. Commodities broadly fell, which is expenses. 
and wages were below, rose slower than CPI, thus real wages were down. What does that mean to margins? Margins expanded. So there's two higher for longer cases. Wages sort of slow. Now, that wages right now are catching up to CPI and through CPI in that wages, real wages are now higher, are now positive, um, which should shrink margins because the input costs are going up. Similarly with commodities, um, but who knows? Maybe CPI is what roars back and wages come down and you stay in the sweet spot of very strong earnings and earnings surprise on the upside. Um, even with potentially lower margins, they surprise on the upside because CPI inflation drives revenues faster than um, expenses. And well, higher for longer is just observing nominal CPI, nominal growth be above what the Fed is tightening. And so right. and what I'd like to say is money. It, yeah. Right. What I'd like to say is it's um, it's revenue inflation versus expenses inflation. Both are going to go up in a higher for longer environment. The bull case is the revenue expansion goes up faster than the input the expense inflation. The bear case is the opposite. Now both of them are negatively impacted by both in equities. You can't get that bullish in the higher for longer case because bonds are going to sell off a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's the discount rate for all these flows anyway. So there is a headwind of um, higher yields and tightening financial conditions that, sorry, that are negative for, um, for um, equities. But the revenue side, the earnings side can surprise significantly on the upside. Gotcha. Yeah. So I keep focusing on the discount side, right? If, I mean, let's face it, I think the dividend yield on the S&P is 1.6% and you can get four, four and a quarter on a high interest savings account or, or a, um, you know, a money market fund, right? Yep. So it, you know, at some point you've got to think that equity investors are going to be questioning whether the ERP is competitive against the what they can get in for risk free. Um, and yeah, that seems to have impacted pretty dramatically, right? Multiples. And I mean, we're, we're expecting 200, 220, I think in, in earnings in 2023 is the most recent one I saw, whatever. Yeah. So we're looking, we're still at 18 times forward, forward earnings. So, you know, it's the earnings yield is pretty weak. The the dividend yield is pretty weak, and cash rates are looking pretty darn attractive. This is why this is why I struggle to make a strong bull case for the higher for longer scenario. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's right, um, but I do think it's higher. Like I wouldn't bet against stocks if I thought with certainty inflation was going to pick up, and because it also operates with a lag, which is, gosh, I don't know. What if inflation picks up in the next three to six months and the Fed pauses before hiking? Well, damn, I, I'd like to own equities in that case. I yeah, wouldn't want to own bonds. For a trade. But, right, yeah. a trade, yeah. You know, equities can, equities can rally on just the Fed pausing to hike, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and, I, and as we talked about earlier, you're looking at, your trading horizon is between, I think, one to three months, right? That's when you walk generally in, so. right. 
Call so it that's, three months. In that horizon, it's super important for you to understand the risks of directionality for that time period. And, and all, these, all these levers could, for a year, bring us to what Adam's case has given us, right? Because I think your, your case, Adam, is more of a broad, you know, uh, multiples are still high, cash is king, you know, we're going to, I don't see a case for that. But if we're looking at two to three months, then you can navigate around that much better by understanding these dynamics. So that's a key point, I guess, in every macro discussion, right? Yeah. Sure. And then you come to the possibility that we're wrong and it's not higher for longer. It's a soft landing. And a soft landing has, you know, I, listen. So one of the things I've noticed in the last two months being short assets is that the probability of each of those things has shifted. Um, I would say that, uh, Soft landing has um, remains remains very um, crowded um, as it relates to expectations of Goldilocks that the Fed has nailed this. Um, but the recession case is very heavily priced into, not completely, but heavily priced into the path of interest rates. If you look at two-year um, SOFR contracts and DEIS 24, they're priced um, that Fed funds will be, um, you know, 175 to 200 basis points below peak. That means in 18 months after peak, the Fed's going to cut 200 basis points. Now, in most recessions, they cut 300 basis points. Um, and so it's not 65%. That's not how it works. But if it was 300, would you be betting on that? That means that a recession was a certainty, essentially a certainty. So there's quite a bit of recession priced into uh, the short-term interest rates and no recession priced into equities, which I think is an interesting thing. And to me, looks like a trade. Um, that isn't the same trade as I have now. I'm actually in the midst of coming up with the way I want to play this. But I think the recession case in bonds and the lack of and the soft landing case in equities it represents an interesting opportunity to me. Right. So you've bonds are um, overbought. Equities are overbought. And so hence you're short both. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That makes David Zervos, who I love, I don't know if you know David, he works at Jeffries and is a macro analyst, coined a term um, um, blues and spoos. And this was during a time when quantitative easing was the thing. And all he did was buy four-year bonds, which are the blues pack in the Eurodollar contract, and uh, spoos. And you didn't have to do any fancy risk parity stuff. They both rallied. We might be time. It might be time for twos and spoos, but just short. Right. right. Interesting. And then how, how do you weight the... Um, the impact of your the evolving views on how the different scenarios are being priced against the liquidity situation, right? So you're, we're going to get you know inf information about where Powell perceives the inflation trajectory, um, where Powell perceives the employment trajectory next week. We're also going to um, get information about. Treasury issuance. How do you weight those two factors? I know that's a nuanced question, but I just I'd love for you to just talk it out. Yeah, to me, it's basically fairly straightforward that I'm um, pretty much ignoring the um, um, the hike issue. 
Um, what I want to listen to reminds me of December of 2021 um, when he mentioned the balance sheet. There's a very subtle issue coming from the Fed that is how long are they going to do Q QT? And will they continue to do QT while they're cutting rates? And so that's the thing I'm listening to on the, um, the speech, the minutes three weeks after, and the, uh, sorry, the statement's not going to have that information. But the speech, the minutes three weeks after, the, uh, sorry, not the speech, the presser, and three weeks after, to see if I can get a sense of um, how committed to quantitative tightening they are. And frankly, it could be the case that they say, you know, we're thinking about when we're ending this thing. Um, if so, lightning fast, I'm going to be long everything. So, I mean, it was, if it wasn't the previous meeting, it was the meeting before where Powell was unequivocal about the fact that they are going to play out their QT as scheduled. Yeah, I would say, so I mentioned that because I'm just telling you how I would flip. It's not my okay. expectation. My expectation is that um, um, Governor Waller um, last week um, commented on quantitative tightening, um, and he said that the, um, uh, the effect of quantitative tightening is a reduction in the asset side of the Fed's balance sheet, which means a reduction, simultaneous reduction in um, the size of the uh, liabilities of the Fed. And let's ignore the volatility of the TGA, but just look at the, uh, let's assume that stays where it is. The, the government just issues what they need, gets what they need, spends what they need, and the TGA stays where it is. By the way, that's the way it used to be for decades. The TGA was not a thing. It's only recently that it's become a thing. Um, but what would happen in the balance sheet reduction mechanically is that um, reserves would decline and reserves are holdings um, are, are essentially the deposits that the uh, commercial banking system leaves with the Fed. Um, and the way the mechanics works is a reduction in the asset side is a reduction in reserves. But there's this other balance sheet item now called the RRP, which is uh, really deposit-like in all ways, but it's instead of involving the banking system, it's money market funds um, depositing cash with the Fed that the Fed securitizes with securities so that the, that the institution doesn't have any credit risk, and the Fed pays interest on that cash. And so it's just like a deposit, but direct from the the private sector without the bank as the middleman. And the reason why it's the bank doesn't want to be the middleman is because of this supplemental leverage ratio that makes it unattractive for them to hold deposits. So Waller said uh, that what he wants to do is keep doing QT until um, reserves um, fall to 10% of the of the um, GDP. Now that's a number of about two and a half billion dollars. Um, currently reserves are around $3.1 billion. So geez, that's like 600 billion away. We're gonna have QTN before the end of 2023. Wow, that's a big deal. I wanna buy all assets. 
But what he said, and I think this is extremely important and possibly something that gets discussed in the weeks to come that I'm going to be paying most of, you know, significant amount of attention to, is what he said is, I think RRP plus bank reserves is really reserves. Now that number is 5.1 trillion and a long, long way away from 10% of GDP, which means QT forever. Yeah, that distinction- so clarity on that will be important. Impact, right? Yeah. Right. So I, I'm gonna look pay a lot of attention to that on discussions around that, which could happen in the minutes or could happen. I, I, I tweeted at Timoros and Leesman and McKee, just ask a question, how long is QT gonna last? And by the way, another subtlety is Waller said, you know, I could see us continuing QT while we're cutting rates, which is odd because we're, we're hitting financial assets, which is um, uh, anti-inflationary and negative growth while we're cutting because we're in a recession. That seems odd, but he said that. And so I just like to know, is QT going to end six months from now or is it going to go on for two and a half years, uh, dry out the RRP, dry out the reserve amounts to you know a sensible level of reserves. We're over-reserved right now in the banking system, and um, and um, end up with a again a two point six a two a two and a half year trajectory that continues when they're cutting rates. And the important part about that, the continuing while they're cutting rates, the rate cut can help the economy. It can act on the economy, making people say, geez, I'm not going to keep my money in the bank account. I'm going to go give it to, uh, to consume because, or I'm going to buy assets. Now that's less so. They're more likely to just spend. Um, but you can do QT and still hit financial assets, which are potentially still bubbly relative to the amount of stimulus that has been put into the system over the years. So I think there's a complex case for allowing QT to go on while you're, even if you're in a rate cutting environment. Um, but that's all I'm paying attention to. Yeah. The Fed. Well, we, this is the, we've been talking a lot about this, uh, the idea that the economy can continue to chug along while financial assets underperform the economy. And because we've seen the opposite of that in the last QE cycle. And we saw what we, you know, in the 70s, it was the economy outperforming financial assets. Uh, this is, they're not necessarily, we talk a lot about what's going on, whether it's a recession, it's not a recession. That the more nuanced part is always when the rubber meets the road, what are assets going to do? And can we see a managed situation with the economy while also continuing to see a deterioration of, of uh, equities and whatever yeah. other assets. And to me, I look at these things and say, these are just crude levers, crude mm -hmm. levers that you've handed to the Fed, you've delegated to the Treasury through this thing I talked about earlier in terms of issuance type um, and are all happening, all happening with the most fiscal, you know, the most fiscal and monetary stimulus as measured by, you know, percentage of GDP we've ever seen 
And China and Japan are in a completely different time frame and economic condition. And Europe has a war and a variety of other different economic conditions, and they're just embarking on their tightening cycle. And so with all of those things, man, I just don't believe we're going to land this thing softly. Well, Adam, what's your analogy? I've been liking your analogy about the, um, the, the car and, you know, yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been using the analogy of a, um, of someone driving a car in a simulator. And if you're able to see exactly what is happening in the game and react to it in real time, then you can learn and adapt and do a pretty good job of steering. If you're, if you're driving quickly and you're, there's a delay between what you see or what's happening and what, when you see it happening, then you're going to be chronically oversteering, right? They actually have done these, these experiments and they, they measure displacement based on the delay of the signal, right? Sure. I, I think this is a really good analog for the problem the Fed is facing. Now, if you're just driving and there's no inflation and all you, all you need to do is figure out, you know, how much you want to put on the gas in order to, because growth is slowing, then you're driving in 2D and, and you know, it's, it's, the problem is less hard. When you've got all, you know, now you have the inflation axis, but you've also got this policy asynchrony across, like you said, China, Japan, Europe, et cetera. Um, and you're driving, basically having to steer through the rearview mirror, then I think this is why we often see in these inflation cycles that you don't just get high inflation, you also get really a huge increase in the wobbles, right? Because it's kind of the Fed and other actors, big actors in the system that are oversteering in both directions, right? And so, you know, you've got to re- be fairly agile in being able to, to swing trade or trend trade or what have you in these environments. You kind of can't rely on being able to set your sails and, and, and go in, in one direction. I, I agree. And, you know, you throw that in, throw in the monetary and fiscal being so large. And it makes, you know, imagine um, how difficult it was for Burns and Volcker in a world in which pretty much the interest rate policy could really directly impact consumption because people were buying big, heavy stuff that landed on, if it landed on your foot would hurt. They aren't buying services. They weren't buying services. And our consumption patterns now and the huge size just makes it, you know, I, uh, take your analogy and say, now you have to do it at 3x speed. Yeah, right. I think take the analogy. You have to do it like before you're driving and simulating a car. You have to do left and right on long road, long and wide roads. So, you know, you got off track. You were fine. You're going right and left. You're now driving an airplane, right? I, I, I like to think of it. I like to think of it as as like the cliff, two cliffs. You know, these roads in Europe that where there's like cliffs on either side, right? And they're really, really, really deep in this particular case relative to any other time in history, and equally narrow. Yeah, or yeah I like that comment. Narrower, when than I, never, narrower than ever before. The and comment so, from my it, are impossible. When I was a kid, they had a simulator like uh, that at a children's science center, and it was to simulate drunk driving. Wow. 
right? That's right. Well, I, I, I think the policymakers are doing their best. Sure. Um, and I will definitely uh, be impressed if they land this thing softly, not all, here, here on time this in 2023, and then Europe on time in early 2024, and then China whenever it lands in 2025, and all these planes come in just right. Um, and if so, I'm going to lose some money being short all assets. Um, but look, if not, generally, financial conditions tight. So generally, like we want, we hope that they they find an economic soft landing, right? We want the world to kind of kind of ideally get that Goldilocks scenario, while also I like I like the angle of while also increasing risk premium for investors over the next two to five years, right? And seeing those asset prices become a bit more reasonable, if possible. I, 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 again, I have a three month horizon. So I'd like yeah. to make money on this trade and then have everything work out for humanity in the best possible way. I like, you know what, I'll do that. I'll make that happen for you, Andy. That, were, that would be good. I'm with you. Very practical. <laughs> awesome. Well, look, I know you've got a dinner that you're uh, preparing for, maybe for a crowd that I wish I was there. Not tonight. Oh, it's not tonight, is it? Oh, I see. Yeah. I gotcha. Gotcha. Well, well, still respecting your Friday, your Friday evening. Um, and I feel like we have really put a vacuum to that big brain of yours and extracted a huge amount of value. So thank, thank you so much for sharing. Um, sure. All of the plumbing um, uh, exposition was, was really fascinating and, and super helpful. Um, and I, for one, look forward to seeing how your positioning and thinking evolves uh, over Twitter. And uh, before we go, let's let talk at least briefly about your new venture with gray beards and um, how people sure. can find you with Damp Spring, et cetera. Sure. Um, you know, Damp Spring is um, so something I've offered to clients for a while now off of Twitter. Um, it's at capacity and I have a very long wait list, so I'm not going to market that. Um, I think people enjoy it. I enjoy helping them. And my goal is to help sophisticated investors up their learning curve. Um, Nick Giovannik, who is Nick, at Nick Giva on Twitter, who worked at Solomon Brothers for many years, um, older than me, um, less of a beard than I do, came to me and said, how about we do something together that helps the investor whose um, financial advisor may have failed them over the last year, um, met stay, staying with 40 years worth of 60-40 like portfolios. Um, and do it in a very timely way that they can uh, consume 20 minutes a week of what happened last week, what's going to happen next week, not predictions, but what, what, actually, what news is happening and how that might impact your portfolio. And then we come up with a portfolio together that reflects our views on how to manage money from a long-only standpoint simple execution. We put it in a interactive broker's account and track it for you. And the idea is not for you to follow our trades. We're not a financial advisor. We can't offer financial advice, but for you to look at what we do and the questions we ask so that you can ask the same questions to your financial advisor. Like, why am I so heavy on equities? I've had this been experiencing all this risk and that's not consistent with what I'm doing. Or 
Is it the right time to buy inflation-linked bonds given whatever? Um, and just so we can arm in a very short way. And so that's at Two Gray Beards. Um, we produce a video a week um, on YouTube. And, um, you know, we're excited about it. It's about a month old. Fantastic. And you are at Damped Spring on Twitter and um, an extremely worthy follow. So with that, unless Rodrigo, you have anything else you no, want to ask? Andy, thank you so much. Yeah. That was thank great. You both. Really appreciate your time. Yeah. I Thanks a lot. It. I'm sure we'll get together soon and enjoy your weekend. You too. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time. Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, gold and commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit rationalmf.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund.